Chapter Two of Fast in the Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fast in the Ice by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Two. At Sea, the First Storm. It is now hundreds of years since the North Polar regions began to attract general attention. Men have long felt very inquisitive about that part of the earth, and many good ships, many noble lives have been lost in trying to force a passage through the ice that encumbers the Arctic seas, summer and winter. Britain has done more than other nations in the cause of discovery within the Arctic Circle. The last and greatest of our Arctic heroes perished there, the famous Sir John Franklin. Were I writing a history of those regions, I would have much to say of other countries as well as of our own. But such is not my object in this book. I mean simply to follow in the wake of one of Britain's adventurous discoverers, and thus give the reader an idea of the fortunes of those gallant men who risk life and limb for the sake of obtaining knowledge of distant land. There have always been restless spirits in this country. There have ever been men who, when boys, were full of mischief, and who could settle to nothing when they grew up. Lucky for us, lucky for the world, that such is the case. Many of our restless spirits, as we call them, have turned out to be our heroes, our discoverers, our greatest men. No doubt many of them have become our drones, our sharpers, our blacklegs. But that is just saying that some men are good while others are bad. No blame is due to what is called the restlessness of spirit. Our restless men, if good, find rest in action, in bold, energetic toil. If bad, they find rest, alas, in untimely graves. Captain Harvey was one of our restless spirits. He had a deeply learned friend who said to him one day that he felt sure there was a sea of open water round the North Pole. Hundreds of ships had tried to reach that pole without success, because they always found a barrier of thick ice raised against them. This friend said that if a ship could only cut or force its way through the ice to a certain latitude north, open water would be found. Captain Harvey was much interested in this. He could not rest until he had proved it. He had plenty of money, so had his friend. They resolved to buy a vessel and send it to the seas lying within the Arctic Circle. Other rich friends helped them. A brig was bought. It was named the Hope, and as we have seen in the last chapter, it finally set sail under command of Captain Harvey. Many days and nights passed, and the Hope kept her course steadily towards the coast of North America. Greenland was the first land they hoped to see. Baffin's Bay was the strait through which they hoped to reach the open polar sea. The Hope left England as a whaler, with all the boats, lances, harpoons, lines, and other apparatus used in the whale fishery. It was intended that she should do a little business in that way if Captain Harvey thought it advisable, but the discovery of new lands and seas was their chief end and aim. At first the weather was fine. The wind fair and the voyage prosperous, but one night there came a deep calm. Not a breath of air moved over the sea, which was as clear and polished as a looking glass. 
The captain walked the deck with the surgeon of the ship, a nephew of his own named Gregory. Tom Gregory was a youth of about nineteen, who had not passed through the whole course of a doctor's education, but who was a clever fellow, and better able to cut and carve and physic poor suffering humanity than many an older man who wrote M.D. after his name. He was a fine, handsome, strapping fellow, with a determined manner and a kind heart. He was able to pull an oar with the best man aboard, and could even steer the brig in fine weather if need be. He was hearty and romantic, and a great favorite with the men. He, too, was a restless spirit. He had grown tired of college life, and had made up his mind to take a year's run into the polar regions by way of improving his knowledge of the outlandish parts of the world. "'I don't like the look of the sky today, Tom,' said the captain, glancing at the horizon and then at the sails. "'Indeed,' said Tom in surprise, "'it seems to me the most beautiful afternoon we have had since the voyage began. But I suppose you seamen are learned in signs which we landsmen do not understand.' "'Perhaps we are,' replied the captain. "'But it does not require much knowledge of the weather "'to say that such a dead calm as this, "'and such unusual heat, "'is not likely to end in a gentle breeze.' "'You don't object to a stiff breeze, uncle?' said the youth. "'No, Tom, but I don't like a storm, "'because it does us no good and may do us harm.' "'Storms do you no good, uncle,' cried Tom. "'How can you say so?' Why, what is it that makes our sailors such trumps? The British tar would not be able to face danger as he does if there were no storms. True, Tom, but the British tar would not require to face danger at all if there were no storms. What says the barometer, Mr. Mansell? said the captain, looking down the skylight into the cabin, where the first mate, a middle-sized man of thirty-five or thereabouts, was seated at the table, writing up the ship's log-book. "'The glass has gone down an inch, sir, and is still falling,' answered the mate. "'Reef the topsail, Mr. Dicey,' cried the captain on hearing this. "'Why such haste?' inquired Gregory. "'Because such a sudden fall in the barometer is a sure sign of approaching bad weather,' answered the captain. The first man on the shrouds, and out upon the main topsail yard, was Sam Baker, whose active movements and hearty manner showed that he had quite recovered his health without the use of physic. He was quickly followed by some of his shipmates, all of whom were picked men, able in body and ready for anything. In a few minutes sail was reduced. Soon after that clouds began to rise on the horizon and spread over the sky. Before half an hour had passed, the breeze came, came far stronger than had been expected, and the order to take in sail had to be repeated. Baker was first again. He was closely followed by Joe Davis and Jim Croft, both of them sturdy fellows, good specimens of the British seamen. Davy Butts, who came next, was not so good a specimen. He was nearly six feet high, very thin, and loosely put together, like a piece of bad furniture. But his bones were big, and he was stronger than he looked. He would not have formed one of such a crew had he not been a good man. The rest of the crew, of whom there were eighteen, not including the officers, were of all shapes, sizes, and complexions. The sails had scarcely been taken in when the storm burst on the brig 
in all its fury. The waves rose like mountains and followed after her, as if they were eager to swallow her up. The sky grew dark overhead as the night closed in. The wind shrieked through the rigging, and the rag of canvas that they ventured to hoist seemed about to burst away from the yard. It was an awful night, such a night as causes even reckless men to feel how helpless they are, how dependent on the arm of God. The gale steadily increased until near midnight, when it blew a perfect hurricane. "'It's a dirty night,' observed the captain to the second mate, as the latter came on deck to relieve the watch. "'It is, sir,' replied Mr. Dicey, as coolly as if he were about to sit down to a good dinner on shore. Mr. Dicey was a remarkably matter-of-fact man. He looked upon a storm as he looked upon a fit of the toothache, a thing that had to be endured and was not worth making a fuss about. "'It won't last long,' said the captain. "'No, sir, it won't.' answered Mr. Dicey. As Mr. Dicey did not seem inclined to say more, the captain went below and flung himself on a locker, having given orders that he should be called if any change for the worse took place in the weather. Soon afterward a tremendous sea rose high over the stern, and part of it fell on the deck with a terrible crash, washing Mr. Dicey into the lee scuppers, and almost sweeping him overboard. On regaining his feet and his position beside the wheel, the second mate shook himself and considered whether he ought to call the captain. Having meditated some time, he concluded that the weather was no worse, although it had treated him very roughly, so he did not disturb the captain's repose. Thus the storm raged all night. It tossed the hope about like a cork. It well-nigh blew the sails off the masts and almost blew Mr. Dicey's head off his shoulders. Then it stopped, as it had begun. Suddenly. End of chapter 2